Hello everyone. And from my heart, I must say, that I have truly undergone a metamorphosis of my soul. I feel that it's appropriate for me to discuss. And I'll be honored to discuss that with you. As you all know, um, I just left church. Um, I didn't leave the fellowship of believers. I just found a better way to be around uh, faith-based people without the politics of church. I thought about as I've been doing episodes, how it's important for me to understand and for you to understand that I don't criticize the church to be a born in the church's side. I credit it's constructive criticism that I give the church because I love the church and I respect the church. Um, I care for and I care about the church. I just saw things that made me go, I have to lovingly step away because the spiritual abuse I was getting from the church, I just could not handle it anymore. Um, I come to recognize when I came to church, there was this negative thinking that they controlled the keys of heaven. And they also controlled the keys of hell, deciding to go to heaven go to hell because they don't believe in purgatory. And they, the chosen people mantra, from what I saw, was about otherism and not about humble human beings following Jesus of Nazareth, who they call the Christ. Um, what I also saw was I saw people not making it their business to know. I saw people not having a heart. For those who've been outcasts. I know that sounds vague. Let me get specific. So the reason why autism is not mainstream in Christian culture is because of the ignorance pervading disability concept. I like to say unique abilities. Um, 
for example, if I have to fight for people with autism, then I can no longer believe that exorcism is required for autism. My impatience with people on the spectrum has got to go. Meaning I may have to clean up after them. I may have to resist the urge for physical discipline. I may have to build my character in ways I would never would have if I was never meeting a person with autism. I would have to not feel the need to hurry them up into adulthood so they can get away from them. So these are the, I'm not, these are not, this is not me talking. I'm saying this is subconsciously what is going through the minds of many people, especially including church people. Um, because church people have this sense of perfection that is warped from my perspective. Where if I'm following Jesus, then I'm the perfect Christian. No one is. But they suffer from the perfect Christian syndrome. So if I have a disability, let's say society labels me with glaucoma. A lot of church people think that's a curse from God and a sin from Satan inflicted upon that person because that person is somehow out of favor, out of touch with God. So if I'm, if I make a difference for people with autism, that means I can't be a separatist basically I can't be a Pharisee I can't segregate people no prejudice no bigotry, no discrimination, no narrow-mindedness no close-mindedness no otherism, no tribalism no clicking, no clubbing, no clanning um no no being territorial and there's more people included in the chosen people um, doctrine than one may care to admit. And I have to recognize the outcasts within myself. If I have to recognize the other people are outcasts. So being perfect in the world of religion has gotten that rambunctious and that deranged. So, if I'm a Christian, and I have to fight for people with autism, that means I have to recognize the educational traumas, the academic traumas. I have to recognize that... Hmm. 
I may have to protect children and actually put them first for a change. But a lot of church people are afraid of, just like a lot of people in the world, are afraid of, oh man, somebody's slavery. I really gotta really, really protect them and put them first. And I have to put my adulthood to the shelf to benefit the children. It's a lot of fear. It's a lot of fear that is truly, truly happening. And I felt the need to bring that up um, because that's on my heart to really get out. Now I'm going to do these two articles. Here we go. This is by John Pavlovich, July 21st, 2017. Stuff that needs to be said. No, being gay or lesbian, bisexual, or transgender is not a sin. Being gay is not a sin. Neither is being lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. The Bible never claims that it is. It really doesn't. Christians should stop saying it because it's reckless and irresponsible, and it's killing people. It's the most reckless, wasteful, irresponsible misuse of religion. The most dangerous kind of stereotyping and license to discriminate, and it's killing people who are made in the image of God. Christians love to say that, by the way, that all human beings are, quote-unquote, made in the image of God, yet they also contend that these same made-in-the-image-of-God human beings are either created male or female, that any other non-binary expression of gender identity is against God's will, some unholy bastardization of the original plan. The problem they have to deal with in declaring this is God. The off-used line from the Genesis creation story actually quotes God as saying, let us make mankind in our image, and this God then ultimately creates both men and women. If we are to, as so many homophobic slash transphobic Christians do, take these words at face value, we need to ask the question, which ones were created in God's image, the males or the females? If our answer is both, which it, which it must be, then God is decidedly non-binary. God transcends a single gender identity. God is by nature transgender. We cannot have God be a he and also make women in his image, and we can't have a God capable of creating men and women unless God is equally made of both. These Christians wouldn't dream of excoriating God for the fluidity, would they? These same folks also want to use the Bible to condemn LGBTQI plus people and to deny them the rights of marriage and church fellowship, but they have another problem, the Bible. They have all sorts of issues to contend with there. They'll attempt to use the word homosexuality, which does not occur in the original text, as an umbrella term to refer to both gender identity and sexual orientation. When the context of the translated word they're using and the occasions it appears in scripture simply cannot refer to both things simultaneously. Additionally, many transgender people are in fact not same-sex oriented and not accurately described by the same word Christians would use to describe a gay or lesbian person. They like to say that the Bible declares that marriage is strictly between one man and one woman, while the Old Testament, as early as Genesis' fourth chapter, is teeming with bigamy, polygamy, and extramarital sex practiced by the lauded pillars and patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Gideon, Solomon, David, not as cautionary tale and not with rebuke, 
but simply as the story of God's people. There are no definitive statements on marriage spanning the breadth of scripture. They'll frequently refer to the book of, Levit of Leviticus claiming it says that homosexuality in quotations an abomination. A flawed talking point as we'll discuss later and ignoring the surrounding verses condemning that disrespectful teens and those having extramarital sex be stoned to death along with hundreds of requirements and punishments most of which they declare irrelevant to their present lives it's become a highly selective use of the text they'll throw around the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as supposed proof of God's wrath against the gay community when in fact the book of Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 49 declares the former, the former was destroyed because of its greed and disregard for the poor but you don't see many of these Christians preaching that sermon especially not GOP Christians I'll add especially not MAGA make America great again Christians they'll try to say that Jesus opposes the LGBT plus community when he never once corrects cautions or condemns anyone based on their gender identity or sexual orientation. In this case, we're supposed to believe the unspoken damnation is implied when, when in reality these people are making Jesus say things he never said simply because they want him to say it. They'll refer to a quote-unquote homosexual lifestyle when the Bible is devoid of such terminology for the simple reason that the concept itself is ludicrous and non-existent as proven by the fact that a quote-unquote heterosexual lifestyle makes absolutely no sense when applied to straight people. They'll claim that the term homosexual refers simply to people who have sex with same-gender partners, yet will also admit that their own heterosexuality refers far more than just their sexual activity, but to their inclinations to love, where they seek affection, intimacy, relationship. They can't have these words work both ways. They need to decide whether the less than a handful of passages in the New Testament are referring to identity, orientation, or a specific behavior by specific groups of people in a specific context, which is likely. Great unpacking of these passages here. And there's a link, gaychurch.org. I'm definitely going to be using the link for tomorrow okay they'll quote Paul in Romans chapter 1 describing people consciously trading their natural affection for same-sex desire corresponding physical acts failing to connect the dots that for most members of the LGBT plus community there's no such exchanging taking place they aren't feeling one thing and choosing an alternative simply to choose they aren't acting in opposition to any primary inclination. Their same-sex orientation is their natural. If pressed, these Christians need to admit that this passage refers to a specific sex act tied to pagan worship practices and cannot be superimposed over identity and orientation. And it's certainly not appropriate to use it to categorize committed, loving relationships by people along the full LGBTQI plus continuum. When trying to use Paul's references in this way, they're trying to separate LGBTQI plus people from the capacity to love and be in mutually beneficial relationships, and that's simply wrong. At the end of the day, the Bible is not clear on these matters. It is cloudy and even contradictory at times. There is no consistent sexual ethic in the scriptures. No one image of marriage and no specific condemnation from Jesus or Paul or those who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, simply because of their identity and orientation. 
if we can admit that LGBTQ plus people have the same capacity for love, commitment, and monogamy in a mutually beneficial relationship that cisgender heteronormative Christians do, the text becomes impossible to weaponize as, as it has been. And the God of the Bible as presented in Genesis is himself slash herself slash itself, an image of the beautiful spectrum of sexuality in the defense of those who believe we each manifest this complexity in a myriad of ways. Christians wanting to persecute the LGBTQ plus community have long claimed that God and the Bible are their justifications, but this simply isn't accurate. Not if, if they're to use the reality of God and all the words of the Bible, not just the bits that feel like consent when isolated in social media, diatribes and shouted sermons. These people are going to have to admit that ultimately the only authority they're yielding to in these matters is their own, or the teachers or parents who have passed these ideas down to them. It is their fear, their prejudice, their lack of knowledge that caused them to lash out in hurtful words, violent rhetoric, and abject cruelty. More and more Christians are beginning to understand this, that our faith tradition has gotten it wrong regarding sexuality, the same way it has it has regarding the worth of women, the plague of slavery, interracial marriage, the violence against non-Christians, and on and on. They are seeing that being LGBTQ plus and being Christian are not mutually exclusive. They're seeing that a church that honors God will welcome all people. We've wasted so much time, so many resources, so many beautiful God-reflecting lives because we've made our fear our idol and tried to retrofit God into that image. The sooner we can let go of this misplaced fervor and this fruitless fight, the sooner we can live out Jesus' clear and unmistakable commands that we love God and all those who share this practice with us. No, being LGBTQIA plus is not a sin. No, gender and sexual diversity is not a sin. The sin is the hatred that feeds to let go of that notion of it requires us. John Pavlitz spoke all of my thoughts for me, and that's all I'm going to say on that. Here we go. John Pavlitz again, December 1st, 2018. Dear phobic Christians, leave LGBTQ plus people alone. Dear phobic Christian, I'm not sure how you ended up here. I don't know how you ended up deciding that anyone else's body, their gender identity, or their sexual orientation were any of your business. I don't know... Who told you that you had any right to tell another human being who they could be attracted to or find contentment with or what pronouns they should use for themselves, how they should dress or who they could marry or what restrooms they had to use or they deserve to adopt children or not? It certainly wasn't Jesus. I know you like to pass that buck to Jesus in your treatment of LGBTQI plus people, but I also know that he never asked you to do any of it. You were given the authority to judge their moral work. You weren't given permission to trespass into their bedrooms, and you weren't authorized to police their physicality. On matters of sexuality, Jesus was largely silent, and so how you found yourself being so loud about it is probably something you should pray on that may be a you problem. That may be a you problem. What I do know about Jesus is that he told you to love people as yourself with that kind of regard and respect and gentleness. I know he told you not to cast stones or insults or condemnation at anyone until you're fully sinless yourself. I know he told you that as you treat the marginalized and the forgotten and those already suffering, you treat him. 
And I also know that he never once criticized anyone for the identity or orientation. And he never said you should or could. In fact, in his most popular sermon, Jesus was quoted as saying, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's or sister's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's or sister's eye. Dear Christian friend, what Jesus is saying to his followers, including me, is that you could spend every waking moment you have left here in this life. Expend every ounce of energy, use up every last breath of your life, just working on the putrid mess of your own house and still be way behind. That means that if you have sermons to preach or fingers to point or damnation to dispense or send to call out, you should do it in the mirror or shut your mouth. Because even if the Bible said that being gay or lesbian or bisexual transgender was a sin, which it flatly doesn't, which it flatly does not, that would still be between an LGBT class plus person and God, not you. You don't get to meddle with people's bedrooms and bathrooms and body parts. That's way above your pay grade and outside your jurisdiction. There's simply no biblical way around it. Your job should being a Christian really matter is to love people as you desire to be loved. It is to be peacemaker and caregiver and wound mender. And please, friend, don't give me that hackneyed, tired nonsense that you are loving LGBT plus people by doing the things you do to them because that's an insult to all of us. If you're going to tell me with a straight face that ridiculing them in the streets and excluding them from your churches and passing legislation to take away their civil rights and prohibiting them from being fully authentic is loving them, I'm respectfully calling bullshit. Here's how I want to say it. I'm respectfully calling fucked up ass bullshit. The day you convinced yourself that this was love, you lost the plot completely. No, Jesus commanded you to love people as you desire to be loved, as you desire to be loved. I wonder how you desire to be loved. I imagine you desire to be loved by being seen as a complex human being with dignity and worth. I imagine you desire to be loved by being allowed to be the most qualified person to tell your story and share what it's like to be inside your skin. I imagine you desire to be loved by having a journey respected as yours alone. I imagine you desire to be loved by being able to choose the person you spend your life loving, loving and how you show affection and find companionship. I imagine you desire to be loved by being allowed to live. In light of this, you need to leave the LGBTQI plus community the hell alone. I want to make it more uncut than that. In light of this, you need to leave the LGBTQI plus community the fuck alone. They are trying to live, work, raise families, worship, and love in peace. And for some reason, you have decided that you get to prevent them from that. They, like you, are doing their best to make their way through this painful, difficult, exhausting life. And you are making it all much more painful, difficult, and exhausting. You are a source of grief and creator of pain and a doer of damage. And there's nothing redemptive or God-honoring in it. You are wasting your fleeting daylight here on wars you just didn't actually wage. You're squandering relationships you could be nurturing and you're irreparably injuring people made in the image of God. This is reckless, it's irresponsible, and yes, it's sinful. You need to start emu emulating Jesus. Start treating people as you like to be treated. And stop being horrible in the name of God.
And actually, friend, I'm setting the bar really low for you. Honestly, as a Christian and as a decent human being, you should be doing far more than simply letting these people be, friend. You should be including them fully in community. You should be welcoming them into your churches without condition. You should be celebrating their marriages and their families. You should be loudly demanding they have every right to life, liberty, and happiness that you need. You should be standing between them and the bullies instead of partnering, partnering with them. You should be deeply and fully and lavishly loving them. That's what they deserve. But I know that's probably much too much to ask of you right now because of the hubris you're struggling with. Giving that reality as a person who loves LGBT plus people daily and as a long time caregiver who's heard them tell horror stories of your everyday cruelty and as a veteran pastor who's had a front row seat to the unnecessary pain you're causing and the wedge you're driving between them and God, I can only plead with you if you really believe you're called to love and not to wound people, leave the LGBT plus community alone. And that's the part where I say, thank you, Jesus, for John Pavlovitz. <sighs> okay. You know what? There's more that I'm just going to have to read. I'll get to the uh, Born and Free Equal episode. I'm going to talk about it. But I, I had to get this out of my system. Let's talk about it. This is GayChurch.org. The Bible, Christianity and Homosexuality by Reverend Justin Cannon. Inclusive Orthodoxy. It's an introduction. What does the Bible really say about homosexuality? Should the church allow the blessing of homosexual marriages slash unions? Should a homosexual and committed relationship be ordained a priest or even a consecrated bishop? What about tradition? What should I tell my friends or relatives who are gay? Must they remain single for their whole life? We all have pondered at least one of these questions at some time or another. The study, this study and the end product of much research, dialogue, and prayer for reflection, I sat down one day and decided I want to know once and for all what the Bible really says about homosexuality. I would like to share with you a study of the six Bible verses that have often been used in reference to homosexuality, as well as explore homosexuality within the context of, of Christian tradition. Regardless of whether or not you are a Bible scholar, whether or not you can read Greek or if you know everything or nothing about Christian tradition, you'll be able to follow the study of the Bible, Christianity, and homosexuality. Terminology, homosexual, the English word homosexual is a compound word made from the Greek word homo, meaning the same, and the Latin term sexualist, meaning sex. The term homosexual is of modern origin, and it wasn't until about 100 years ago that it was first used. There's no word in Biblical Greek or Hebrew that is equivalent to the English word homosexual. In 1946, the Bible version, RSV of the Bible, was the first translation to use the word homosexual. Sodomite. There's no word in Biblical Greek or Hebrew for sodomy. A sodomite was simply an inhabitant of Sodom, just as a Moabite was an inhabitant of Moab. Any translation of the New Testament making use of the words sodomy or sodomite are clear interpretations and not faithful translations. Looking at the Bible, there are six Bible accounts that have in recent years been used in reference to homosexuality. These include Genesis chapter 1 and 2, creation account, Genesis chapter 19, 
verses 1 through 9, Sodom account. The Holiness Code, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. Letter of Paul, Romans chapter 1, verse 24 through 27. Letter of Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 9. Letter of Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. The Sodom account, Genesis chapter 19, verse 1 through 9. The story of Sodom is an appropriate text to begin with as it has taken a central role in the study of homosexuality. We must understand the context of this account. God, according to the story, sent two angels to warn Abraham's nephew, Lot, about the approaching destruction of Sodom. Let us stop here for a moment. Even before sending the angels, God intended, according to the story, to destroy Sodom. Whatever the reason for the city's destruction, it had to do with the sin of Sodom before this event. The story continues. The angels came to the city of Sodom and Lot. The angels came to the city of Sodom and Lot welcomed them to his home and prepared a meal for, prepared a meal for them. Then a grouping of men surrounded surrounded the house and asked where the angels who had come to the house were. They basically shouted, Where are these where are those men who came to your house? We want to have sex with them. Lot refused to offer his daughters instead of giving the reason. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man let me bring them out to you and you can do what you would like and you can do what you like with them don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof uh, chapter 19 verse 8 the crowd of men insisted on what they wanted and tried to break through the door the angels ended up pulling Lot into the house and blinding the crowd first of all in interpreting this event we must take into account the entire situation Whatever is happening here, it is a form of rape. The crowd of men wish to sexually assault or gang bang, in quotations, the angels. The situation is also sown with appalling violence. Let me assert that Lot's offer of his daughters instead of the male angels implies that homosexual sex would have been worse than heterosexual sex, but Lot himself gives his reason for his action. Don't do anything to these men. They have come under the protection of my roof in our time. This does not make entire sense, but in Lot's time, hospitality was a nearly sacred concept, and it is that distinction that Lot expresses. The visitors are his guests. I want to pause here and add something. Lot offered his daughters to be sexually assaulted and gangbanged the crowd. Lot offered his daughters to be raped and gangbanged. So the angels weren't the only ones that could have faced gang rape and rape. Lot's daughters too. Just keep that in mind. Nonetheless, if we were to accept that the distinction is gender-based, we could only conclude Homosexual rape of angels is worse than heterosexual. Homosexual rape of angels is worse than heterosexual rape. Use this story to condemn all homosexual behavior is unfounded and truly stretching the story outside of its historical framework. But that is exactly what has happened. Jeffrey S. S. Silker, in reference to such distortion of his text, wrote in his article in Theology Today: David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba does not make all heterosexual expressions sinful. I, I I have to uh, um I want to say um I'm gonna make a correction. David raped Bathsheba. So let's say it better. David's sin of 
rape that he forced upon Bathsheba does not make all heterosexual expressions sinful. An interesting disconnection to this story. In the 1508 Wycliffe translation of the Bible into Middle English, the Greek word arsenokotai, arsenokotai in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 was translated sin of Sodom. Well, this spelled sin with S-Y-N-N. Wycliffe's own interpretation was that arsenokotai had something to do with the Sodom story though nothing is implied in such a New Testament text. The author could very well have written, quote-unquote, sin of Sodom if he had wanted to. If your Bible translation has sodomites on that list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it's because of Wycliffe. We will look more closely at the word arsenokotai below in our study of the 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy text. However, it is remarkable to see how the story of Sodom filled with rape and violence has taken such a central role surrounding the topic of homosexuality, more precisely in the development of the word quote-unquote sodomite as, it, as what it means today. Important term. Arsenokotai, Arsenokotai again, this Greek, noun is, this Greek noun is formed from the joining together of the Greek adjectival prefix for male, arseno, and beds koitai. Literally, then it would mean male beds. It is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. This is the first appearance of the word in preserved Greek literature, and outside of these two verses, this word does not appear in the New Testament. The Greek word arsenokatai is mentioned in both 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 and its meaning is debated. Because of the obscurity of this word and the lack of outside sources to shed light on its meaning, we must derive its meaning from the text. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8-10 through 10. Now we know that the law is good. If anyone uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, immoral persons, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, RSV. Let us keep in mind that the word translated sodomites is the Greek word arsenokotai. Our question right now should be, what is this talking about? In order to answer this question, you will begin by breaking up the phrase into its structural pairs. You will see these groupings reflected below in the English as well as the Greek. The New Testament, by the way, was originally written in Greek. So, so first Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 through 10, English RSV. So, A, lawless and disobedient. B, ungodly and sinners. C, unholy and profane. D, murders of fathers slash murders of mothers slash manslayers. E, immoral persons slash sodomites slash kidnappers. F, liars slash perjurers slash and whatever else. As we see in the English, there seems to be a relationship between the words in each rows A, B, C, D, and F. What about row E, though? What do immoral persons, sodomites, and kidnappers have in common? To answer this question, we'll need to explore the Greek. The three Greek words present in line E are pornoi, pornoi V, arsenokatai, arsenokatai, 
the anthropodestai, anthropodestai e. Some commonly read Bible translations include King James Version, KJV, New International Version, NIV, New King James, NKJ, Revised Standard Version, RSV, New English Bible, NED. These words were respectively translated in the following manner. Uh, Hornoi, whoremonger, adulterers, fornicators, and all persons. Arsenokatai, them that defile themselves with mankind, perfect sodomites. Uh, Andropodistai, men, stealers, slave traders, kidnappers. As we see, there's no clear-cut agreement as to what these words mean. Though the above translations agree on the general sense of such words, to determine the precise meanings as a lot to determine the precise meanings, a lexicon will be used. A lexicon is a scholarly dictionary used to determine the meaning of biblical words. A search through the online Greek lexicon available at searchgodsword.org gives the following information on the Greek term pornos which is the stem of the word pornai the first of three words pornos derived from the verb pernamai meaning to sell and the following three definitions are given a male who prostitutes his body to another's lust for hire a male prostitute a male who indulges in unlawful sexual intercourse and fornicators and draw predestines uh, the stem of the word anthropodestai. So it's anthropodestis, the stem of the word anthropodestai. The third word returns the following definitions slave dealer, kidnapper, man stealer, of one who unjustly reduces free males to slavery, of one who steals the slaves of others and sells them. Arsenokatai, as previously indicated, is made up of the Greek works for male arsenal and beds koitai. Greek, the word koitai literally means beds. It's commonly used as an euphemism for one who has sex. Arseno is an adjective prefix, thus literally, thus literally we could translate this as male better. We should now be able to derive an exact understanding of the word arsenokatai based on the two words that surround it. We have, first of all, the enslaved male prostitute, the male bed arsenokatai, and the slave dealer. The New American Bible offers a footnote that might shed some light on the historical context of the time. The Greek word translated as boy prostitutes may refer to cantamites. And, you know, boys or young men who are kept for the purposes of prostitution, a practice not uncommon in the Greco Roman world. In Greek mythology, this was the function of Shanaman, the cupbearer of the gods, whose Latin name was Catamus, Kat There was a common practice in which men of Paul's time would have slave pet boys whom they sexually exploited. These boys were prepubescent without beards, so they seemed like females. Today, this practice is referred to as pederasty. Regardless of the pornos is clearly a prostitute. Keeping this in mind, let's look back at what we have so far. The enslaved male prostitute, the male better arsenokatai, and the slave dealer. This contextual dynamic leads one to understand arsenokatai as being the one who sleeps with the prostitute, the man who literally lies on the bed with him. 
It is as if Paul were saying, male prostitutes, men who sleep with them, enslave them, and who procure them. Not only does this syntactical and historical context point to this understanding, but also the very little sense of the word, but also the very literal sense of the word arsenokatai itself. If this translation of arsenokatai is correct, it should also make logical sense when it's also used in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, either confirming or refuting our understanding of this word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Do you, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor sexual purpose, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers, will inherit the kingdom of God, RSV. The time translated, quote-unquote, sexual purpose in RSV, is actually two different words. The first word is malakos, which is the singular form of the word malakoi. The second term is arsenokatai. Some commonly read translations include, so this is Malakos, KJV feminine, NIV male prostitutes, NKJ homosexuals, RSV 1952 homosexuals, RSV 1977 sexual perverts, RSV 1988 male prostitutes, Jerusalem Bible cantamites, Arsenokatai, KJV abusers of themselves and mankind, NIV homosexual offenders, NKG sodomites, they have nothing for the RSV 1915, RSV 1977, RSV 1989, sodomites, Jews and Bible sodomites. The term Malakoi as an adjective literally means saw. And Matthew chapter 11 verse 8 has been used as an it has been used as an adjective in reference to clothing. In this text, however, it is used as a noun and its meaning is debated. Does our understanding of arsenokatai as revealed in first century chapter one verse ten as men who sleep with male prostitutes make sense next to this word malakos, which is translated by both NIV and RSV as male prostitutes? The Jerusalem Bible even translates the term malakos as catamites, these young, soft, prepubescent pet boys mentioned earlier. They put pet pet in quotations, by the way. The syntactical and historical context of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 reveals the meaning of the word arsenokatai as men who sleep with prostitutes. In fact, this also fits the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, seems to confirm that we have found the meaning of these obscure words. It makes perfect sense that Paul would rebuke not only the prostitute, but also the male better or the man who sleeps with that prostitute. As you see, these two, these two verses are about this practice of prostitution, possibly pederasty. But what about Romans chapter 1, verse 27? Here's what I want to say. I think it is about pederasty. And I think... It's, I don't think it's prostitution that's the problem. I think underage prostitution is the problem. Child prostitution is the problem. Child sex tourism is the problem. But prostitution based upon a lack of consent, a lack of respect, a lack of equality, 
a a lack of trust and a lack of safety that type of prostitution is condemned not the type of prostitution as we know today where it's all consenting it's all equal it's all respectful it's all trusting it's all safety we have to keep in mind the ancient world didn't understand what we us modern people understand here we go But what about Romans chapter 1, verse 27? It clearly says, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving their own persons to do penalty for their error. Isn't this clear enough? There are no obscure Greek words. How are we to understand this? So verse 24 Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural. 27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error, RSV. To understand what Paul is writing about, we must look at the event as a whole and not isolate a single portion of it. Each verse in the story gives us a glimpse into the situation. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. If we are painting a picture, it begins with the image of lust. Verse 25, they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Now, there is a falsehood as well as idolatry involved, worshiping something other than God. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now, dishonorable passions are presented. Looking back at this, we see this as a situation of lust. The the perverted type lust, not the healthy one. Uh, falsehood, idolatry, and dishonorable passions. Verses 26, 2017. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Looking at the men first will help to clarify the passage. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women. Stop! Did you see that? They gave up natural relations with women, which implies that these men were heterosexuals by nature. I think that is what happened. Heterosexual males uh, were acting outside and of their true sexuality. Their true sexuality is heterosexuality because that's naturally who they are. So they were lying to themselves and to others that they were having untrue sex with because of your true sex heterosexuality and that and because that's natural you are, then yeah, that's problematic. The phrase translated as quote unquote gave up is the Greek word aphente, 
Asente be meaning to leave behind, forsake, neglect, or divorce. These men therefore divorce themselves from their own nature, that of heterosexuality, and were consumed with passion for one another. Women did likewise. As we see, Paul is talking about heterosexual individuals engaging in homosexual sex, which is contrary to their nature. Why would men do that? As any biblical scholar will tell you, context is everything. This is a situation of unethical lust, falsehood, idolatry, dishonorable passions. In this account, there are a number or of men and a number of women, both plurals. This, will, this would most definitely be an orgy. Everyone filled with lust, quote, 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 dishonorable passions, having sex with whomever, however. But why would Paul be talking about orgies? Little research uncovers the pagan practice of sacred sexual orgies. Baal was a Canaanite deity that was worshipped with sexual orgies on Mount Pr in Moab, with which Paul would have been familiar. With this contextual understanding, let us read the story again. So before we do that, there's a difference between good orgies and bad orgies. Good orgies are consenting, equal, respectful, trusting, and safe. Bad orgies are non-consensual, unequal, disrespectful, untrusting, and dangerous. So good orgies, yay. Bad orgies, nay. That's simple. Here we go. With this context understanding, let us read the story again. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, were consumed with passion for another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving their own persons to do a penalty for their error. Anyone who isolates the phrase natural relations to declare homosexual relations unnatural is interjecting their own prejudice and reading entirely outside of context. Even if we were to isolate that phrase, it could only be used to condemn heterosexuals who go against their own heterosexual nature and engage homosexual activity. As Peter J. Gomes, preacher to Harvard University, further clarifies in his book, The Good Book, it is not clear that St. Paul distinguished, as we must, between homosexual persons and heterosexual persons who behave like homosexuals, but what is clear is that what is unnatural is the one behaving after the manner of the other. Uh, page um, 157. In my view, I think it is clear. If you're gay, don't try to be straight. If you're straight, don't try to be gay. If you truly think that you are the sex assigned at birth, don't try to be transgender. If you're transgender and you know in your heart you are not the sex assigned at birth, don't try to be cisgender. So have the sex 
based upon your nature. Tell, be truthful to self and others, including romantically and sexually, physically, and so on and so forth. So don't have gay sex if you're straight. And if you, and if you're gay, don't have straight sex. If you're cisgender, don't try to be transgender. If you're transgender, don't try to be cisgender, because. You are opposing your naturality and you should not do that because that is unnecessary deception and needless cruelty to self and others. So I think the distinguishing is clear. Paul is not talking about gay people. Paul is talking about sexual dishonesty of self and others. Be true to your nature and let your nature be true to you. Here we go. So far, we have looked at all three of the New Testament scriptures using reference to homosexuality, as well as the Genesis narrative about Sodom. That leaves us with two other scriptures that are mentioned when this topic is brought up. The creation narrative, Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapters one and two, in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, in the parallel verse, chapter 20, verse 13. The creation narrative, Genesis chapter 22. This is a story about Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, as many church people would love to say. We all probably heard that somewhere. The fact is, it was Adam and Eve. In the good book, Gomes writes the following pertaining to the creation narrative. The authors of Genesis were intent upon answering the question, where do we come from? Then, as now, the only possible answer is from the union of a man and a woman. The creation story in Genesis does not pretend to be a history of anthropology or of every social relationship. It does not mention friendship, for example, yet we do not assume that friendship is condemned or abnormal. It does not mention single state, and yet we know that singleness is not condemned, and that in certain religious circumstances it is held in very high esteem, pages 59 to 50. In other words, Adam and Eve is the only relationship for the specific account that makes sense. It's a story about creation and only a procreative uh, example heterosexual relationship would be appropriate for a particular story if someone, in spite of this, were to base um, their own opinion of homosexuality and creation story alone, that stands for not only be out of context, but, but also based on a weak argument. That leaves us with two of Leviticus laws. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, parallel verse, chapter 20, verse 13. So we're, let's look at a few different translations of Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, KJV. Thou shalt not lie with a man as, as with a woman, it is an abomination. Then I do. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman, that's detestable. Living Bible, homosexuality is absolutely forbidden for instance in our sin. The questions we should ask are, what does this really say? And what is the context of this law? Leviticus is the book of the law. It contains everything from commandments for men not to shave the edge of the beard of others, not to have intercourse during menstruation, not to harvest different crops in the same field, so as to dietary laws. Holiness code, as it is called, was written to distinguish the Hebrews, morally and ritually, from the Babylonians and Canaanites. So 
they're often referred to as the purity laws. Now let us look at what the New Testament says about the law. Likewise, my brethren, you have died for the laws of the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. While we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions roused by law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit, R.S.P. Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. Now, before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed, so that the law was our custodian until Christ came, and we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian, example, the law, for in Christ Jesus we are all sons of God through faith, RSV, Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 through 26. Other New Testament scriptures in the law include 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8 through 13, Romans chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. If we are not under the law, does that mean we can lie, cheat, steal, etc.? In Romans chapter 6, verse 15, Paul answers this question himself by no means. That's the equivalent of hell no, as we were said today. Didn't Christ himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 say that he came not to abolish law but to fulfill it? So, what is the law? Jesus was once asked, Rabbi, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend on the law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. RSV, Matthew chapter 23, verse 36 through 40. Uh, Paul would later echo this idea in Romans as he wrote, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this sentence. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. RSV Romans chapter 3 verse 6. Uh, Christian tradition has distinguished Old Testament laws that pertain to quote purity and those that pertain to quote unquote morality, the law of which still applies. Love is the true fulfillment of the law. If a Christian should not love these national six to determine by which laws we are to abide, which are moral laws, for example. Question. Now let's look back at the verse, literally translated from the Hebrew, Luke chapter 18 to 22 reads, and with a male should not lay lines of a woman. First of all, lay lines. Wait a minute. Now with a male, you shall not lay lines with a woman. First of all, lay lines has no clear interpretation. The only way of making sense of this is to insert something to produce a smoother, more common sense English translation. For example, one can insert as the or in the after the first lay as shown below. As shown below. And with a male, you shall not lay as the lines of a woman. And with a male, you shall not lay in the lines of a woman. Wait a minute. And with a male, you shall not lay as the lines of a woman. And with a male, you shall not lay in the lines of a woman. Even if we accept NIV or KJV translation, KJV, thou shalt not lie with a man as with a woman is an abomination. You must 
we still must understand the historical context of how a man late with a late with a woman. So this is the qualifier of the phrase. Rabbi Arthur Westow explains the whole structure of sexuality in the Torah assumes a dominant male and a subordinate female. The status of women in that time was much lower than that of men, and women were even considered property of the men. This belief regarding gender relations is rejected by most of the Christian church today, which I am thankful for, by the way. But in order to make sense of the specific Jewish law, we must keep in mind this context in which it was written. We simply cannot ignore the second half of the phrases with a woman as most interpretations tend to do. For one of the men in the sexual encounter to be treated as one would treat a woman. The man would have been taking a lower status to do so, would have been reducing him to property and in effect defiling the image of God which man was considered. Yeah, I'm telling you man, patriarchy is misogynistic. Patriarchy is inherently misogynistic. I hate patriarchy because I hate misogyny. To, further under, to fully understand this law, we must consider the historical context in which it was written. The Old Testament was initially a part of the Hebrew scriptures of the Jewish people. The Septuagint was an ancient translation of the Old Testament from its original Hebrew into Greek. It was the quote-unquote version of the Old Testament that the, New, that the New Testament writers quoted from when they cited Old Testament scriptures. The Hebrew word in this specific law we are looking at that was translated into English as abomination. It was translated into Septuagint into the Greek word bedologma. A quick search through a lexicon for the word bedologma brings up the following definition. A foul thing, a detestable thing of idols and things pertaining to idolatry. That see, this seems to point to the idea that this specific law has more to do with a matter of ritual purity and with the Hebrews not being like the idolatrous Babylonians or Canaanites. As we see, this law isn't as simple as it appears. First of all, we have a very unclear law, and with a male, you shall not lay lines with a woman. Second of all, we must consider the historical context of how men treated women in sexual encounters. Thirdly, as revealed through Christ, the fulfillment of the law is truly love. Rape, stealing, hating, etc. are immoral because they are not in the line with the law of love, which Christ frames so perfectly when questioned, when questioned about the law. Is a committed homosexualist in violation of this law? We could become like the Pharisees and Sadducees trying to pick apart this law forever, but if we look closely, Christ's life truly reveals the spirit of the law. Sure, this is what Paul meant when he wrote, but now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. RSV, Romans chapter 7, verse 4 through 6. Scripture study conclusion. As we see, the Bible really does not fully address the topic of homosexuality. Jesus never talked about it, the prophets never talked about it, and of Sodom, homosexual activity is mentioned within the context of rape. Raping angels nonetheless, and in Romans chapter 1, verses 27, 20, verses 24 to 27, we find it mentioned within the context of idolatry, foul worship, involving lust and dishonorable passions. 1 Corinthians 
chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 talk about homosexual activity in the context of prostitution and possibly pederasty. Nowhere does the Bible talk about a loving and committed homosexual relationship. The only thing the authors of the Bible know about homosexuality is that which what which they saw expressed in paid worship of vows, the symbol of prostitution, etc. Read the Bible to condemn homosexuality as we see involves a projection of one's own bias and stretching the biblical text beyond that which the scriptures speak. Historically, however, the Bible has been taken out of context and twisted to oppress almost every minority one can imagine, including women, African Americans, children, slaves, Jews, Native Americans, um, people of Hispanic descent, the dreamers, uh, immigrants, foreigners, strangers, refugees, asylum seekers, uh, girls, um, elderly, and the list goes on. If we truly understand the greatest commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, Depend on the depend all the law and the prophets are as being Matthew chapter twenty two verse thirty six through four. Um, this is what I want to say. Um, Gay and rape are never the same. I'll say this last time. Gay, consensual, rape, non-consensual. And rape is about abuse of power. Anyone of any orientation can rape. In fact, heterosexual people are the biggest rapists in the world. Church tradition. Tr tradition, however, has held that marriage is a sacrament divine for a very specific purpose. The following is taken from the article Homosexual Marriage by United Methodist Clergyman Text Sample. To address Christian homosexual marriage, attention must be turned to the tradition of the church. Here I am indebted to the work of Daniel and Dell Jr. St. Augustine is the major figure in the teaching of the church on marriage. Her marriage is an office of duty which once served the church in a larger society. This office serves three ends. First is the procreative end, which is understood by Augustine as raising children for the kingdom of God. The word kingdom for me can be insensitive to gender sexual diversity. So I, I prefer to say for the royalty of God. It is not primarily having children one's own in a biological sense. The second end is the unitive and in which couples learn faithfulness to each other and to God and become thereby witnesses to an order of charity. The third is the sacramental end, which for Augustine relates more often to the indissolubility of marriage.
church tradition. Tradition, however, has held that marriage is a sacrament defined for a very specific purpose. The following is taken from the article Homosexual Marriage by United Methodist Clergyman Text Sample. To address Christian homosexual marriage, attention must be turned to the tradition of the church, and here I am indebted to the work of Daniel M. Bells, Jr. St. Augustine is the major figure in the teaching of the church on marriage. And marriage is, is an office, a duty which one serves the church and larger society. The office serves three ends. First, the procreative end, which is given by Augustine, is raising children for the kingdom of God, as I like to say, royalty of God, because gender, sexual diversity must be honored. It is not primarily having children of one's own in a biological sense. The second end is the unitive end in which couples learn faithfulness to each other and to God and become thereby witnesses to an order of charity. The third is the sacramental end which Augustine relates more often to the indissolubility of marriage. These three ends are sustained in the later Middle Ages. And Augustine sees marriage as serving to restrain lust in the later Middle Ages. A more positive view develops in which marriage contributes to growth and holiness. Okay, I have to say something. You should never marry somebody just so you can fuck them. You should marry someone because you adore them. Sex is the icing on the cake. Some marriages, you do have sex with marriages. So I have to say that as well. The point is that marriage in the Christian tradition serves a number of ends. Procreation, fidelity, sacrament, slash owl, mutual support and companionship, mutual society and loving companionship. What is striking is that all of these ends can be met by homosexual marriages, even the procreative and when the procreative end is understood as raising children for the royalty of God and not primarily as a function of nature, a biological function on these grounds. It's appropriate for gay, lesbian, Christians to be married in the church and is not in violation of scripture or tradition. The objection to this argument by some Christians is to raise up Mark chapter 10, verse 7, where Jesus states that for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The argument is then made that this is the only form scriptural marriage can take. The issue addressed in this passage, however, is divorce. Jesus is responding to a hard-hearted test of his authority. Extending his response to a blanket denial of homosexual marriage goes well beyond the text. Moreover, it is uttered by a single Christ who did indeed leave his mother and father to engage in his incarnate mission. So as long as we're dealing with a single Christ who left father and mother for different reasons, we must be open to other possible options, especially options that fill the ends of Christian marriage traditionally understood. In conclusion, biblical teaching does not address the host of same sex practices, among them homosexual marriage. Moreover, the ends of marriage is understood in the tradition of the church or ends that homosexual marriage can fulfill. So the issue in the confirmation of a bishop in a homosexual relationship is not whether they're gay, not even whether they are practicing homosexual. Actually, that could be a slur. So practicing homosexual is something to think more than once before you say it because, again, that can be a slur. The question is, are they married to their partner? So does this marriage meet these ends? Um... The sacrament of sex. 
There are those who would say that this topic is really much simpler just comes down to sex. They might ask, isn't the inherent function of sex procreation and in which homosexual sex does not fulfill? The 1958 resolution of the 9th Lambeth Conference on the subject of intercourse wrote, Sexual intercourse is not by any means the only language of earthly love, but it is in its full and right use most revealing. It is a giving and receiving in the, in the unity of two free spirits, which in itself is good. Therefore, it is utterly wrong to say that such intercourse ought not to be engaged in except within the willing intention of children. Okay, here's the truth. You can have sex, but most of the time it has nothing to do with procreation. If that were the case, people would be dying left and right because to have a baby every time you have sex, ugh. You have way more childbirth passing away than you do now. And that's, and that's real. And you don't need to have a baby with someone to enjoy your marriage to them. Um, I want to say about the Adam and Eve thing. I think... The Adam and Eve thing has not been proven to be true. Creationism has been debunked. And evolution has been proven to be correct based upon scientific data. So I can argue that the whole we come from one man and one woman in the Garden of Eden is clearly not true. Um, What I will say is to frame our human existence based upon a man and a woman. So you're saying only God can do that. What if God made Adam and Eve transgender? What if God made Adam and Eve bisexual? So we still can't come from them. They need to be heterosexual cisgender for me for us to from them, then you're saying that God is not omni anything that he says he is. He in quotations. So I feel like that's a form of transphobic homophobia to even say only go for man and woman. So basically saying God is not all powerful. God is not almighty. You're disrespecting God when you say that. Um... Therefore, it's utterly wrong to say that such intercourse ought not to be engaged in except with the willing intention intention of children. Sex within marriage can fulfill two defined functions, the procreative and the unitive. I actually say that sex that is unmarried can fulfill two divine functions, the procreative and the unitive as well. Here's my view. Ethical unmarried sex is just as gorgeous as ethical married sex. Ethical fornication is just as lovely as ethical matrimony relations. That's my other way of saying it. This is what I also want to say. Ethical unmarried sex in the sex industry is just as fabulous as ethical married sex in the sex industry 
Let me take it a step further. Ethical sex in the sex industry is just as remarkable as ethical sex outside of the sex industry. So you don't need to rely on a relationship to be a light to the world. You don't need to be in a committed relationship to be committed. Because the commitment starts before the legal world steps in, before the minister steps in, before the documentation steps in. So if you rely on marriage to be committed, then you don't know what commitment means. I'm committed to honoring you, and I don't need a ring to be humane to you. There's another way of putting it. I also want to say that um, when they say, what about the word divine? When I think of divine, I think of peace. I think of serenity. So I don't need marriage to be of divine characteristics. I'm that way without marriage. I can be that way with marriage, but I choose not to be. So, as for the procreative, here's what I say in unity. Out of wedlock, pregnancy is not the problem. Impregnating someone you have no, that, that you don't value, that's the problem. Out of wedlock, parenting is not the problem. Deadbeat parenting, bad parenting and absent parents due to their own self-destructive behavior, those are the problems. Um, Out of wedlock, um, child rearing is not the problem. A child having one and or two horrible, unprotecting of children type parents, that's the problem. Not paying child support even though you're supposed to, that's the problem. That's how I see it. You don't need to be married to be a good parent. You can be an excellent parent, unmarried to other parents. You just have to pick the right partners. If you can do that with sex, and you can do that with pick the right person to co-parent and you have to be an ethical parent yourself so you could be an ethical unmarried parent they, they exist they exist and ethical married parents exist alright if homosexual sex can fulfill one of the two divine ends of sex is that not reason enough to bless lifelong homosexual unions slash marriages regarding the two regarding the two Regarding the two divine ends of sex, 
the procreative and the unitive. You can't do one, does that mean you should not do the other? By no means. Again, that's Paul's way of saying hell knows when it's saying today. <laughs> Interestingly enough, the Roman Catholic Church, as well as most other churches, permits the marriage of infertile couples as well as the marriage of women past childbearing age, both of which close the possibility of procreation. As Boston College professor of theology Charles C. Heflin Jr. summarizes this beautifully, sex can be productive without being reproductive. Again, sex can be productive without being reproductive. Conclusion, as we have seen, scripture does not really have much to say about homosexuality. Furthermore, we have come to see that homosexual sex within a marriage can fill one of the divine ends of sex, also known as the unitive. Like I said, homosexual sex, unmarried, is a way of fulfilling one of the divine ends of sex, unity. I say procreative as well. And as such a marriage also fits within the traditional Christian understanding of the sacrament of marriage, I would like to leave you with a short story adapted from an oral rendition by Natalie Graber. Uh, Once there was an old man who had to carry water up the hill from the river to his house each day. One of his water jugs, however, had a crack in it so that by the time he arrived at the top of the path, most of the water was lost. His neighbors laughed at him. Why don't you buy a new water jug? Even his wife criticized him. Why don't you buy a new water jug? But the man said nothing. One day he said to them, come with me, and let them step a group of tears down the path that ran from his back door to the river. Almost every day said the man to his wife, I continue on my way to the river. I scatter seeds on my way home. Water leaks from my precious jug to nourish them. To their amazement, the entire left side of the path was in bloom. A riot of color, flowers of every hue and tone made the path of paradise. Is not homosexuality similar to that second jug? It may appear broken from one individual's limited and restricted perspective, but truly what appears to be quote-unquote brokenness is indeed a hidden virtue. Could one even imagine that the jug is not necessarily quote-unquote broken, but rather God, out of abundance and creativity, created more than one type of jug for more than one purpose? On another note, we accept that it's true that we are not only spiritual and mental beings, but also physical and sexual beings. Does it make sense, then, that a large percent of God's children should live in denial of the fundamental part of who they are? Should this group be forced to live without the affection and intimacy that comes with committed partnership? Nonetheless, that is precisely what has happened. Homosexuals in the church are not only among the most marginalized groups, but are often victims of violence or driven to suicide because they cannot make sense of their emotions in light of what they believe or are told their Bible says. Or because of lack of understanding what the Bible truly says or doesn't say they are, more often than not driven to leave the church. We need to embrace and support this group of people, not despite scripture tradition, but, we, but in light of scripture tradition. We need to open the doors of the church, setting aside our own human prejudices, so that we can truly live according to the law that God, God and Christ taught us. The problem, however, is rooted in fear and lack of awareness. Gomes concludes, the combination of ignorance and prejudice under the guise, G-U-I-S-E, of morality makes the religious community in its abuse of scripture in this regard itself morally culpable. For homosexuals, heterosexuals, Christians alike, it is imperative to know what the Bible says about homosexuality. As both groups desire to live according to, to the direction of the Bible, it's understood through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, with looming constitutional amendments in opposition to homosexual marriage. 
in addition to larger church running this issue, it is our responsibility to be as informed as possible. It is my prayer that we may set aside our fears and prejudices and open our minds and hearts to the truth which the Holy Spirit longs to make known to us all. Our office study is one seeking that truth and the spirit of peace which will pass all understanding guide our hearts and minds as we continue to prayerfully consider this issue. Um, this is what I want to say. I want to say that um, back then the birth control was horrible and human life expectancy was short so people got betrothed in, their, in what we would call prepubescent years and adolescent years 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 and so of course they were against what is called, called fornication back then because in that culture they did not have what we have where you can be unmarried and still raise children and have ethical sex they didn't have what we have so of course they're going to be against fornication for them we have advanced in medicine, technology, science, as well as um, ideology, theology. Um, been down. But now I, I can say now that the times have changed. So, and plus they're still big on having children to populate the earth. So that informed the birth control was bad then it's great now um plus when it comes to diseases they didn't have what we have in terms of being able to recover so of course they um didn't have what we have now Um, in order to protect themselves from infections and ailments. They died sooner. A lot of them didn't make it to adulthood. So, the last thing I wanted to say was that when Jesus was talking about leaving your parents and to be united with your wife, he was talking to heterosexual people. We have to remember, Jesus, when he said certain things, look at the words and they'll tell you who he was talking to. Jesus was talking to heterosexual people when he made that statement. Whenever the Bible talks about, um, you know, look at a woman lustfully, putting adultery in his heart, he was talking to heterosexual people. He, every statement Jesus made that man-woman thing, that's not an indictment against homosexuality. That's not an indictment against transgender person. That's an indictment on heterosexual men being male pigs to women. Being perverted lustfully against women. 
and rejecting healthy lust. And he was talking to heterosexual men at the time that you could write a letter of dismissal to your wife and not care about her feelings. He was talking to toxic masculinity type of heterosexual men. Majority of heterosexual men respect women, but you do have a core group of people who are heterosexual, who are sexual deviants, sexually reckless, you know, um, very very just misogynistic so Jesus making those statements against those religious leaders who had every characteristic God says you're not supposed to have so you gotta remember that and lastly the reason what led me to be sex positive you know what led me to be a sex positive movement member let me to be pro-sex and let me to be uh, of sex positivity, let me to be a sex positive feminist, is that I started understanding that I was reading the writings of Paul, and no, I'm not distorting scripture. I want to be honest about what led you to be sex positive, Antonio, even though you grew up in a uh, evangelical background that is logically conservative and I would say um, there are some things that Paul said that rubs me the wrong way to be honest I don't like the Apostle Paul because his writings on women are the main reason why I can't with him um, the whole women be quiet in church I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm for women empowerment feminism and women's rights and girls rights so and for girl empowerment, uh, no, hell no with that. So Paul was saying, look, now to the unmarried widows, I said, it's good for me to stay unmarried as I do, but they cannot control themselves. They should marry for it. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. I have to be honest. I think that's a bunch of bullshit. Here's why. I don't need marriage to have excellent self-control. I don't need marriage to be humane. I don't need marriage to have excellent sexual self-control. And I don't need marriage to be sexually humane. Cannot control themselves? That sounds like rapists. Burn with passion? That sounds like molesters. So, marriage doesn't fix shit. Marriage doesn't fix a goddamn thing. And if you're gonna say burn with passion, specify the consent or lack thereof. Because just because there's marriage, you have marital rape, okay? You could be molested and be married. You could be molested by a spouse, so. 
I I just never laughed at a church. I never heard the word consent. And as a rape survivor, that pisses my ass the fuck off. Um... And I feel like rape, rapists can easily say, I can't control myself, so I'm going to marry my victim because they have married your rapist laws in the deep south. Yeah. So I get to have uh, kids with my victim. Yeah. And they can't take away my parental rights. So rapists love what Paul said there. And then when it came to the whole... Here are the, I look at Paul's writings in the first Corinthians chapter 7. To me, it's littered with contradictions and errors. Because if you're going to talk to people, specify who you're talking to so they know what you really mean. And they can easily decipher what you're saying. For example, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So, is it also good for a woman not to have sexual relations with a man? That is misogynistic. If you're going to say be celibate, talk to people who have celibacy as their thing that works well for them. So, that's just misogynistic. I just can't accept. But since sexual morality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, each woman with her husband. Um. Don't deprive each other. Mutual consent before time was made good self prayer. But he didn't highlight mutual consent the whole passage, which I have a problem with. And why is mutual consent all about? what someone is not doing. What about focusing on on what mutual consent, what you are doing? Why make mutual consent all about can't instead of can? Sounds like a legalistic mutual consent clause. Then come together and say Satan when I tempt you because you lack self-control. Then Paul, basically you're saying there is no mutual consent because if you're only saying don't do something, don't you can only yes you can have mutual consent because of Satan? No. Right? I think that you should never do bad out of bad. You should never do bad at all. I say. You should never do good because of bad. You should only do good because of good. That is real morality. What Paul is saying is false morality. Um, you know, Satan is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy, but don't let him steal, kill, and destroy your sex life. I'm just like, that is so fear-based. Why make Satan a part of my sex life? That's disgusting. And why would you marry somebody who lacks self-control? That's fucked up. I say this as a confession, as a command, and don't write it. If it's not a command from God, I don't want to hear your concessions. Because clearly, 
it didn't come from the Lord, it came from you, and that, and I had no interest in confession. So that's what, in those verses like that, helped me to be a sex positive person that I am. Because I recognize that the ancient way of being sexually ethical, it was all about hate your flesh, but the flesh is good. You just have to do right by your flesh and flesh plus people, and you can achieve that unmarried as well as married. Um, if I help kids with their homework, I'm honoring their flesh because I have no ill will towards the kids. I want the kids to be well. There's no abuse, nothing inappropriate is happening. I'm helping them to get good grades if they're not already. And I'm helping them to stay getting good grades if they're not already. So that's why the ancient views of sex and sexuality and gender and sex characteristics, I completely reject all of them because it's all about doom and gloom, devastation, and contamination. So that is it, folks. I want to say that we have to that LGBT club plus people like myself leave the church because of the hostility, the the living, breathing horror stories that occurred against us. So I just want to say that people like me go to heaven. Because we resemble God's love the most. I just want to say that this last religion, I mean, I had to bring up, I don't want to say, I want to say, I want to say this, I had to bring up this religion to me because it does influence how people see uh, homosexuality and transgenderism. So, the Bible's in full support of homosexuality, transgenderism, and sexual diversity. Thank you for hearing what I have to say.